Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Sam Marchetti. And I'm Tanishree Rajendran. And along with our special guest, Suki the Cat, today we're <laughs> going to get up to date on everything from the microscopic to the extraterrestrial in another discussion on the sidelines. heard of like those lab grown burgers they were all over the news and you would see like them in a petri dish yes and I, i'm i feel like i should be completely honest here for a, a significant portion of time i did not understand that the whole like beyond meat thing i thought that was lab grown meat like i thought it was just meat that you get like that i thought it was just being grown in a lab i didn't understand that it was fully a vegetarian thing like i had no idea Oh my god, if that was the case, like that would be so much more expensive and I'm pretty sure it's no longer vegetarian cuz don't they like grow like actual muscle Yeah, meat no, they do. Else? I think they do. I guess you're going to tell us about that, but like yeah, I thought the whole point was just that it was not like I thought it was like more environmentally friendly. I didn't think it was supposed to be like the vegetarian option, you know. <laughs> no, that totally makes sense, but we're not exactly talking about lab goal grown meat so you have heard of taco tuesday now get ready for fungi fridays okay so basically what they have is that they started using fungi as well as algae instead as alternatives and you know we have like algae kind of derivatives now but what they're doing here is they're fermenting algae as a dietary supplement and fermenting fungal spores to create this really dense doughy looking substance called mycoprotein and they're nurturing it with glucose so it's supposed to be an alternative for meat but i can't really judge till i have a taste but the good thing about this is that um we would eat one-fifth less red meat and we can actually cut the annual deforestation effect by half just in 2050 alone so there's so much climate focused um saving that we can actually do consuming them that's really interesting honestly this kind of feels like uh it kind of feels like a workaround you know to catch those people who have tried like a black bean burger or like you know yeah. portobello mushroom calf like a barbecued portobello mushroom calf and just hate it yeah because black bean burger does not taste good, and I don't care what anyone says. I actually like them. That's just me, though. It tastes like it's, it's like bean dip on a bun. It doesn't like bean dip. Like, oh god, no! I don't like beans. Maybe that's why. <laughs> but, so this is really good because raising cattle and like other ruminants, so basically grass eating animals, contribute so much methane and like nitros oxide to the atmosphere and that's how we get a lot of these greenhouse effects and we've been trying to cut down in methane for such a long time so this like solves a lot of our the paris agreement kind of like climate goals that we have had if this yeah. actually goes ahead and like becomes more commonly known i would like to know how fungal spores taste like that sounds interesting I mean, it is on one hand, it is interesting. But as you're telling me this, you know, the whole time I'm thinking about um, 
I'm thinking about, you know, something that's actually, you know, this is something a lot of people probably don't remember from high school, but, you know, in grade 11 biology, which is, you know, it's a course that I teach, but there's the whole unit on biodiversity and they focus on, you know, the uses of the six different kingdoms. And, you know, within the fungi bit, they tell you about all these different ways that we actually eat fungi, right? Because it's not, it's not just mushrooms. We also have cheese and stuff, right? And then as far as algae goes, right? When you bring up like, oh, we're making protein from algae, most people are like, oh, that's disgusting. Isn't that like the stuff that grows in lakes? But no, right? Because uh, algae is from, you know, it's from a similar uh, kind of line as seaweed, right? And kelp, which we eat all the time, right? In your sushi. Exactly. And like zooplanktons are like kind of close to algae. I would like to think of them. And they power most of the planet through photosynthesis. Yeah. Like we have so much natural resources and I'm... I'm kind of glad they're having so many of these alternatives because, like, come on, sometimes yeah. beef and, like, chicken gets boring. <laughs> so Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, well, they, there's just, like, kind of a, a two-ended attack there to what you're saying, right? Because to raise cattle uh, emits methane and greenhouse gas, right? And we're also clearing land. Yeah, and but then to raise um, algae or to culture algae, right? Not only does it not require the same, first of all, the same land, but also the same uh, methane emissions, but it actually re- removes um, greenhouse gas from the atmosphere because a lot of these algae, I don't know, granted, if these specific algae can do it, but a lot of algae are photosynthetic, right? Exactly. Now, I don't know the case for this one because they do need to be nurtured with glucose. That's what it says in the article. But it, it might be because they are fermenting algae and like a lot of these fungal spores are kind of in the photosynthetic region. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, like most of the research that we talk about on this show, um, it's definitely uh, in its primary stages, I would guess. Um, so I'm sure further down the line, maybe they'll figure out how to get a similar kind of protein from photosynthetic algae and then be able to attack climate change from uh, both of those kind of angles. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to apologize now. I have a cat in my hand, so you might hear a little purring, purring and a little meowing. But what That's okay. do you have Suki the cat, time? Suki the cat is our guest today, um, yeah. and we're very excited to have her here. For anyone who doesn't know, um, Suki means moon in Japanese, right? Is that what she told me? Yes, that's what yeah, she's Suki named means. Suki means moon in Japanese, which is pretty cool because we're going to talk about the moon in a few minutes. So um, <laughs> before we get there, though, I wanted to stay on the level of uh, algae, right? So algae, um, a lot of the time that we think about this, we're looking at the microscopic level. Um, and we've actually had some really interesting uh, stuff come out this week about microscopy. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know, we use microscopes to look at really, really small things. Um, and a lot of the time when you think about a microscope, you probably think about um, the kind of microscope you saw in high school. Right, Tanish? Yes. Oh, my God. The ones you take out from the dusty cupboard and like have like an onion slice underneath. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where you just shine the light up through the slide and you're basically looking through, you know, a glorified magnifying glass down at these uh, individual little cells. Um, but we have much more advanced kinds of microscopy now that are used in um, a lot of research especially in uh, physics and kind of material science. So trying to investigate um, new materials and seeing how we could apply them and manipulate them to our advantage. Um, one issue with that, though, a lot of these materials are just insane. So some materials, um, for example, are called uh, ferroelectric materials. And these are functional materials um, where you can change the charge on their surface and that can be leveraged for um, like computing. 
right? Uh, and different like different sensing applications, a lot of computational things. Um, and you can actually store information within these materials. Um, however, the way the things that affect this, the things that you know affect how much information you can store, for example, um, it really comes down to a very very fine microscopic level um, and changes in the topography of how the material is put together. So you can kind of imagine. Uh, have you seen Ant Man, Tanish? Yes. Who has right. You know, you know when they go into like the quantum realm and because he just keeps shrinking yeah. and it gets like really 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 small. <laughs> That's sort not quite to that extent, but we are looking really small. We're looking at like nanoparticles. Okay. So this is on the order of you know um, ten to the negative nine meters. Right. So really really small. Yeah. So to see this, we need these advanced microscopes and to investigate these materials we can kind of scan them in a grid and we can look at you know individual points that we tell you know the microscope to focus in on however that can be really time consuming it can be really difficult to find those individual points because when you think about it even if you have the smallest sample of a material when you zoom in enough right that's an incredibly large amount of area for you to scan through so what researchers have done is kind of uh, it's honestly kind of a familiar concept. Um, when you log into a website, Tanisha, have you ever had to like click on where the fire trucks are? You know, like yeah. click on all the images with a fire truck or like click on yes. all the images with a bike. Yeah, I'm not a computer declaration. Yeah, exactly. But do you know what the image ones specifically are for? No, not really. So those are called captures. And actually, they're. Um, uh, they're for machine learning. That's what they do, right? We are helping to teach computers what these things look like. Um, so when we click on all the pictures of the bike, it's telling some computer um, or some you know algorithm, this is what a bike looks like, right? So they've done a similar thing with microscopes. What they've been doing is kind of feeding them, uh, feeding these microscopes um, and their software these images of sort of points of interest and they've been teaching the microscope not to look for specific things like we would say you know a bike we're not showing it like this is you know uh, a very specific formation of material that we're looking for but they're showing it images and saying this is an example of something unfamiliar that we are looking for so they're teaching the microscope to think like a scientist and make these kind of observations on the fly and choose for you the areas that you know require a little bit further investigation oh that is so cool i'm gonna lose my job in a few years wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah so scanning microscopy huge advance um and they were actually saying you know if we take it back to those that ferroelectrics um we actually didn't know uh, a whole lot about this but uh there was an automated experiment that using this new technology that discovered specific uh, topological defects, so specific, uh, you know, formations of the surface of that material um, for that, like kind of optimizes how much information can be stored in that material and kind of the best version of that material to use for computing. And they did it in just a few hours. That is so cool. Like machine learning, the concept itself is like so unique and we're just barely scratching the surface of that. And like microscopy, like literally there's so many different kinds of microscopy we use. I was in a conference today and one of the main attractions at the facility was this giant microscopy room. They had fluorescent microscopy and all these electron ones. And like, I guess we keep on adding to that. Yeah. And honestly, I, I think it's very important that we are starting to delve into this realm of, you know, combining machine learning and microscopy because 
you know, we say we've only discovered like what 2% of the species on the planet or something. I don't know if that's actually the statistic, but something really small. Um, right. We estimate that we have, we, there are more species out there that we don't know about than the species that we do know about. Um, and a lot of those are microscopic, right? So yes, in this case, we're looking at, you know, materials in the case of this study, but having automated um, microscopes, right? Having microscopes that know what they're looking for, that would be an incredible advantage to classifying new species that we find and in just finding new species, right? And identifying differences between samples that we're uh, scanning. Exactly. And this gets me thinking too, because a lot of like parasitic, like disease causing um, things are microscopic in nature. There's a lot of bacteria that can cause, cause disease and viruses, obviously. And applying this kind of physics technology and microscopy technology to that, I don't know where that might lead to. Maybe we can actually understand. But there's so much we don't really understand about the microscopic world, I think, as yeah. like a microbiology student. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Tanisha, you have something else about machine learning for us. Yes. So, speaking about machines getting smarter and smarter, I have this article on how machine learning and how it detects gravity signals to quickly let us know when earthquakes are happening as an early warning system. So, we've been having quite a few earthquakes in the last well, we've been having them for a very long time, but we did have one recently that had a really high magnitude. I think it was in Japan. I'm not entirely clear, but most earthquakes tend to happen in that earthquake line that goes around the equator. Almost. Yeah. And so for yeah. anyone who's, uh, you know, unfamiliar with the, the idea of, you know, earthquakes, a lot of them do happen around uh, fault lines, which are kind of if you think about the continents um, and you look at the bottom of the ocean floor, we can actually see uh, separations in the Earth's crust. We see these lines. It's kind of like a puzzle that's been put together um, and the plates, the different pieces of the puzzle are always moving. Um, and when they move significantly or when they kind of slip uh, one off the other, uh, that's when an earthquake happens. So if you're near one of the edges of these pieces, uh, which is usually along a coastline, as you can imagine, the land masses are um, usually kind of their own piece. So along a coastline anywhere, they do tend to uh, to happen a lot. Yeah, and that's where also a lot of like volcanic activity is too. Yeah. So basically, when an earthquake happens, you have these seismic waves. So seismic waves are basically measured as P waves, the height of the wave itself. And it's going to tell you how big and strong the earthquake is. But you usually only tell this like minutes or seconds after the earthquake has already happened. So it's not typically the best measure of early warning because you have mere seconds to like evacuate and things like that. So another thing that earthquakes do, but is less known about, is that it can actually make changes to the speed of light adjustment on the Earth's gravitational field. It's a lot what? of complicated words in one sentence, but let me try to break it down even further. So the mass, when an earthquake happens, it changes the density of the rocks in different location. So the shift in density of these rocks actually cause tiny changes to the Earth's gravitational field, and it's called elastogravity waves, so like elasticity that travel through the ground at the speed of light. This is even faster than seismic waves, which are like 
the noises that you hear and the activity of the earthquake itself. And usually this happens before the earthquake actually occurs. So this is why it's a good early warning strategy. However, you can't really tell when this happens. It's very, very quiet signals, and we didn't have the technology to actually do it until very recently. So you before we get be into the technology, I just back. We need to back up for a second. So gravity. Let's talk about gravity for a second. So gravity generally, right? It's two. Any two things are attracted to each other. Right. You are attracted to the computer in front of you. The computer in front of you is attracted back to you in the exact same uh, magnitude. Right. And these are the forces of gravity. The reason that you don't stick to your computer, though, is because you and the computer are really small. So the force of gravity is really, really tiny. You need something very big for that attractive force to exist. Right. So that's why the Earth pulls us all down. It's why the Earth orbits around the sun, which is even bigger. It's why the moon orbits around the Earth. Um, it's these very large things that have gravitational pull. So what you're saying and what I'm kind of understanding here is by changing that mass or at least the distribution of that mass. So when the rocks kind of uh, change just ahead of an earthquake, we can tell because the gravity changes. Is that more or less what's going on? The density of the rock will change at different locations. So the density of the rock is basically volume kind of with the mass associated with it almost. Yeah. So we're so, changing the yeah. distribution of where the mass is. Yeah, because the density is dependent on gravity. So we yeah. see a slight shift in gravity. And OK, and now we have some technology to detect that. Exactly. So machine learning, basically, we have computers now that can detect this window between the start of an earthquake and the time we receive seismic waves. And seismic waves is when destruction actually happens. Right. So those are the waves that are like formed from the actual Earth shaking, right? Exactly. Those are the ones. And that'll tell you how strong of an earthquake it is. And most of these technology has been designed in Japan. And for more context, we measure seismic waves with seismic meters. They're kind of like these devices on the ground that appears as large wiggles when um, the waves actually happen. Yeah, so they, they kind of measure how strong the vibration is, basically. Exactly. So what scientists have done is that they collected the seismic data, the real seismic data from Japan and stimulate simulated over 500,000 gravity signals of different earthquake levels with different seismic waves to make this machine learning. And with this, this is very preliminary prototype results that are trying to test out because Japan does experience a lot of earthquakes relative to other countries. So if this device and computer system actually works, they will have enough window for evacuation, proper earthquake like disaster management, because disaster management is a huge issue in these sites as well. But yeah, computers are learning about earthquakes. That's wild. That's absolutely insane. Being able to predict earthquakes before they happen. You know, that's like that's got to be the plot of like at least I want to say I'm going to eyeball it at like 20% of scripts submitted to Hollywood studios. It's just like, what if we could predict earthquakes, right? Exactly. There's one with the oh. rock, right? The rock had that one that went big, right? Oh, Great with all movie. the meteor movies. It's like, oh, there's a meteorite coming to earth. Yeah. We're always looking yeah. for, for early warning systems. 
No, when I saw like the word like, oh, it changes the density and gravity. I'm like, what? The Earth's gravitational field? That's interesting. That's really crazy. Yeah, a lot of really cool advances in uh, in uh, gravitational, uh, our understanding of gravity, I guess is what I'm trying to say lately, you know, between that and then the discovery of uh, gravitational waves, which was, you know, confirmed a few years back. Um, anyway, speaking of gravity, big space topics, let's let's go to space. <laughs> um, so have you seen The Martian? The Martian, the movie? Yeah, with um, what's his name? Why can't I oh, remember his name? Matt Damon. Oh, the Martian. Yes, Matt, Matt Damon. Damon. I, it was on the tip of my tongue. Yes. Yeah. Okay. More importantly, have you read the book? No, I didn't know. The book if there is was so book. much better. The book is so much better. Um, anyway, in the movie, for anyone who doesn't know, um, the whole movie is about this guy who gets stranded on Mars after a mission kind of goes awry. So his uh, whole crew uh, kind of thinks he dies in a storm and they launch off in their spaceship to go back to Earth. And then later on, they realize he's still alive and surviving on the surface. Um, so one of the things that the main character, Mark, has to do in this movie uh, is he has a very limited supply of potatoes. He's a botanist and his whole plan was to see um, if he could grow potatoes on Mars. Uh, and he ends up growing potatoes in Martian soil by combining it with his poop. Uh, so to give, you know, the bacteria and the different nutrients to the Martian soil so that the potatoes could grow. So that was kind of like a running joke for a long time about the Martian. It's the movie where the guy grows poop potatoes. Um, but believe it or not, actual science kind of disagrees with that now. Uh, so recently... Um, something that's happened in preparation for the Artemis missions from NASA. I don't know if you've heard about these, Tanisha, have you? I heard a little about it. NASA has been having a lot of missions and with the yeah. new satellite. Yeah, so NASA's planning to send um, people back to the moon. Uh, the whole plan is to, you know, kind of reinvigorate uh, the exploration inspiration in the new generation uh, in hopes that eventually we'll send people uh, beyond the moon to Mars, to, you know, other planets. Um so in preparation for this, a study that was done really recently took 12 grams. They only had 12 grams of lunar soil from uh, the Apollo 11, 12 and 17 missions. So they collected some soil, these missions while they were up there and they brought it back. Um, but these researchers uh, at the University of Florida were given 12 grams of it and they basically grew really tiny plants. Um, they took different wells. Um, so they had basically you can think about it like. Uh, you know, when you go to the store and you buy like those trays of like 12 different tomato plants and they're all in like their own little pots. So they did this on a really small scale because they only had 12 grams of soil. <laughs> so what they did was they took like a gram of lunar soil and they planted the seeds of an Arabidopsis plant in it. Um, are you familiar with Arabidopsis, Tanish? No. So Arabidopsis is a really commonly used plant um, for research purposes because we fully sequenced its DNA. We know exactly what is in every single part of Arabidopsis DNA. Um, we know exactly what's there. We can kind of tell uh, how it's working, you know, the relationship between um, its genome and what it's actually doing, how it's growing, that kind of thing. So what they noticed when they tried to grow Arabidopsis in the lunar soil was that they grew a little bit worse, but they still grew. They grew a little bit worse than plants grown in like earth soil, just normal soil, but they still like they still grew. They still sprouted. Um, and what they actually realized uh, was that while they were growing, uh, these plants were exhibiting kind of stress. 
right? So the way that these plants were growing was the same way that they would grow if they were in, you know, stressed conditions on Earth. So because of this, researchers now kind of have an idea of what they could do to adjust growing plants on the moon. Um, and keep in mind, they grew these in just moon soil. That was it. They gave that is them, cool, uh, cool. yeah, they gave it a little bit of uh, a little bit of water, I believe. Um, and they added a little bit of nutrients. So just because it is bare soils, they added a few nutrients and some light. And that was it. Super simple. So because of how the plants responded, now they kind of have some idea of how anyone living, I don't know, maybe living on the moon, um, should grow their plants, what they should do to adapt for that stress. Um, yeah. That is so cool. So we now have moon plants. Well, not technically moon plants, but moon grown plants. Yeah, we well, we have plants. We know we can grow at the very least these very simple Arabidopsis plants on the moon. We could if we gave them a little bit of water and uh, nutrients. I want I'm wondering now, did they try to simulate like the moon's environment when they were growing the plant or was it just solely experimentation on like the soil composition for the moon? Itself? It was mostly experimentation on the soil, um, but Having said that, on the moon, you would assume that people would be growing these within a controlled environment. So they would have like a little, you know, kind of hub over the plant uh, to kind of control the environment that is growing it. A moon colony greenhouse. Yes. Having said that, there's uh, some pretty significant uh, caveats to this, which is that they didn't study it in the long term. Right? They only had 12 grams of soil. Growing things in soil changes the makeup of the soil. Right. We know that from growing things on Earth. The other thing. Um, the soils on the moon uh, are all different, right? So there are different kinds of soils up there. Uh, there's mature soils, um, which have been exposed to a lot of cosmic wind, right? So it's just kind of space wind, basically. Um, yes. <laughs> and those have a different makeup than uh, less mature soils, which have been exposed to less uh, cosmic wind, right? And what they notice is that in the more mature soils, the ones that have seen more space wind, the plants grew worse than in the less mature ones. Um, so between that and then the fact that once you grow the plants, it might actually change the soil itself. Um, we're not entirely sure how, you know, what the optimal conditions are, but we know they'll grow. Right. Which is a huge leap forward. That is so cool. It's slightly off topic, but do you think we'll actually achieve like moon colonization in like hopefully in the next half a decade, not a decade. Yeah. Sorry, well, the Artemis, century. the Artemis program, the, um, the whole idea is to have people on the moon by 2024. And those people would essentially establish um, kind of like the international space station, but like a habitat on the moon. And there would be constant missions to return uh, astronauts to and from the moon. Right. So send that new astronauts, so I would bring cool. astronauts back. Yeah. Um, and I believe the other point behind this, and this is why this whole, you know, growing plants in lunar soil is such a big deal. It's, you know, can we camp in space, basically, right? Before we send people to Mars, can we do it on the moon? Like, can we even do it closer to home before we try to send people out way, way, way farther, right? Yeah. You and know? I would think, too, they won't actually, maybe they will grow actual full-scale plants, but I was always thinking and imagining they would grow like fungi things like we talked about earlier today where it's like less energy consuming and high protein concentration kind of things yeah yeah well you know regardless it's a it's a very interesting uh discovery it's a huge advance for uh space exploration i'm really excited to see what they do with this maybe the martian will be a reality 
hopefully not with people being abandoned on extraterrestrial planets or, you know, uh, moons. I want to go to the moon. That sounds like a fun time. I feel like they're not just going to let the average person go. I but know. <laughs> I know. I, w- I would say that I also want to go, but I feel like I just throw up. They put me on a rocket ship. Um, yeah, <laughs> no way. I almost throw up on that one ride at Wonderland, you know, where they do the, the, <laughs> the sideways loops. That one almost gets me. I would not do well on a rocket ship. Okay. Talking about space exploration, May 12 was a really special day for space lovers everywhere. Do you want to take a guess into why? I did hear about this, um, so I am kind of cheating. But I do believe there was uh, there's a black hole somewhere in space and they got a picture of a black hole or something, which I honestly thought we already had done. So I'm not quite sure I understand the significance. But I know we got a picture of a black hole. Okay, let me explain this. So the black hole picture that we got in, in back in 2019 was this super massive black hole that and it's the very first image of such a thing being pictured. But this one is so special because it is the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. So this is our black hole. Wait, where was the other black hole? It was kind of like in... I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think it's in this galaxy. Okay. Okay. So it's just out there somewhere. It wasn't special to us. This one's out there. This one's special. This one makes us feel good. This one makes us feel unique, right? This is very special because they call it humanity's black hole. That's the title that they're going with. Even though there's a good chance our galaxy contains other intelligent life. Yes. That feels a little bit uh, premature, calling it humanity's black. Let's call it the Milky Way's black hole, just in case there's like an angry alien species on a different planet in our galaxy. The actual acronym and name that they're going with is Sagittarius A, and that's what they're calling this black hole. And I'm not entirely sure why it was named after that. But no, it's still an amazing discovery. What do you think is a black hole? What do I think of black hole? Uh, it's something they use for time travel in movies. <laughs> oh, I wish this was a Doctor Who series, but no. So a black hole is basically, it's kind of this object that is so dense that it has this massive, massive gravitational pull associated with it. So everything that's in its periphery and it's in gravitational pull won't escape. That's why light can't escape from a, a massive black hole. And have you seen the actual picture that I'm talking about? Yes, I have. So this picture is kind of like a black circle surrounded by a ring of light. And if you look closely at the light, it's kind of like almost wave-ish. It has a slight wave component to it. So the black circle is the black hole itself. The actual light surrounding the black hole itself is called the event horizon. So it's the light that is trapped and that falls on the border of the circle. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And Sagittarius A, our humanity's black hole, feeds like other black holes, actually feeds off hot material that are pushed off of massive stars at the galactic center. Such a cool sentence. (laughs) So the gas that falls off are drawn by its gravitational pull. So it's kind of like its own micro environment except this is not in a microscopic scale so we'll just call it an ecosystem so in sum 
at the very center of our galaxy, we have gotten a picture of this really dense thing that pulls in everything because it's so dense. It has such insane gravity, including light. But around it at a certain distance, once you get far enough away, it can't pull the light in. But the light also can't move far away. So it just kind of stays there in a ring. And we have a picture of this now. Yes, we have a picture of it. And if you look at the picture, we can kind of see it flickering and shimmering. Well, not the picture, but like the actual video itself. And this constant flickering is kind of like ocean waves, which is kind of soothing in a way. And it, we also have confirmed that Sagittarius A is at least 4 million times that in mass of that of our sun. So if wow. that was in the center of where the sun is right now, its orbit would almost reach um, Mars, I think. Wow, that's incredible. That's how big, yeah, it's insane. I know like we, we had this major news development back in 2019, and I, w I know it was like the big deal, but like everyone was so excited for this Mar May 12th. Honestly, if I'm being a little bit honest, the pictures kind of look very similar to me, and I couldn't tell the difference, but then I read about it. I'm like, okay, humanity's black hole. We need to talk about that. Yeah, no, I was on the same page until we talked about this just now. I did not understand why this was significant at all. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, this looks really familiar to the other picture we had. I thought we already accomplished this. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's jump back. I'm obsessed with the moon today. Um, so let's jump back a little bit. Um, this study that I want to talk about, it used stuff from the moon, but it has uh, really serious implications uh, for kind of exploring beyond the moon and maybe going to those places like, you know, the middle of our galaxy eventually. So what do you think the biggest challenge is with space travel, Tanish? We're too slow. We're not going to reach anywhere. Yeah, but also like when you're, you know, when you're building a spaceship, what do you think the, like the biggest thing on people's minds is? Um, would it actually reach our target? Do we have the right material to like withstand space? Yeah, it's always, you know, do we have the right stuff? And then the other thing with that is, can we send, do we have like the money and the resources to send it there, right? And in order to minimize the, the cost and the resource demand, um, it's always kind of a struggle to minimize how much we're sending on the rocket, right? So this study actually comes out of uh, Nanjing University in China. Um, mm -hmm. And what they looked at was, could we take uh, lunar soil and could we potentially create fuel from it? So basically what these researchers have uh, figured out is a method of taking lunar soil and using it to electrolyze water. Um, so they basically take water, they take sunlight to power the whole system, and the important component is CO2, which luckily we can get from, you know, just breathing out. So this is why we need people living on the moon. Um, and what happens is we actually turn all that, so the lunar soil and the CO2, um, into hydrocarbons like methane and we can use methane and burn it as fuel oh yeah so it's kind of like coal almost or like uh, another i mean methane is you know like a natural gas right it's just a fuel yes. that we can use but the important thing is we can maybe make new fuel while we're already out there at the very least um this you know should in theory work with uh lunar soil so it should work with soil from the moon uh, but, you know, we're not 100% sure if it's going to work with uh, work on soil from other uh, extraterrestrial planets or moons, mm -hmm. uh, for example. 
but it is really important that we are able to kind of farm uh, and use uh, extraterrestrial resources to keep these missions going. It could kind of allow us to hop from one uh, sort of, you know, uh, one sort of point to the next and fuel up at different planets as we go along, uh, should this prove to be, you know, uh, successful on a larger scale. Planet hopping series. We go from one planet to the other and we fuel along the way. That sounds so cool. And I guess that's one part of like space exploration that we have yet to discover because space is a giant giant place and like yeah we don't have enough resources on our planet to actually get us where we need to but this scares me a little tiny bit because what if like we just start harvesting the moon for its soil and then it's like a natural resource Oh, yeah. Honestly, with the selfishness of people, that is uh, completely a possibility. Uh, and it's very unfortunate. Um, but it is, you know, it's interesting because at the very least now we know when we send people to the moon, there's a really good chance we don't need to send them with enough fuel to run the systems on the moon. In Like, we don't need to keep sending refueling missions is what I'm saying. You mm-hmm. know, like once we establish yeah. that colony with that, uh, those Artemis missions that NASA's running, right? there's a good chance they can make their own fuel to run their life support systems while they're up there, um, which is an incredible find because so much less stuff that we need to send up there to support them and to support this ongoing colony. And it's kind of like a self-sufficient like colony almost because like we won't necessarily have to like... They're, I don't want to say they won't be reliant on Earth, but maybe eventually there can be the self-sustaining like colony that colonizes the moon without yeah. having to like come back to Earth, and it can be its own separate entity. Well, uh, thanks for joining me uh, again, Tanish. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about uh, space or microscopy or any of the other topics we've talked about on this show, you can visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.